Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 526, The Conflict Escalates. What's the deal with the unpardonable sin? How have we misunderstood the Sabbath? And why do those Pharisees get so grumpy every time Jesus starts talking about the temple? We're going to look at these questions and more as we study Matthew chapter 12. Hello, everyone. Good to be back together again this week. We're on uh, part 26. It's amazing um, how long this is going, but we're now going into chapter 12, and we're going to actually cover the whole chapter today. It presents us with the growing conflict and confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. We saw some of it in 11, but now it really becomes central in chapter 12. Um, You know, we can learn an awful lot from how Jesus interacts with his opponents, his accusers. There's always a great temptation uh, in confrontation to escalate, uh, to come up to or down to uh, the level of forcefulness that the other party is operating in. But at the heart of it, the Pharisees are facing the greater authority of Jesus, and folks, they just don't like it. So let's, uh, let's begin with uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, Lord of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went throughout the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him or his his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless." For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The disciples are being criticized uh, by the law keepers as lawbreakers. And and Jesus responds um, first by giving examples from the Scripture. The first one he gives is from 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David was running with his compatriots, running from Saul, and uh, he, he went to the tabernacle to receive what's called the showbread. Uh, Ahimelech, who was the priest, he bent the rules. He was only supposed to be for the priest, but he bent them. Why? Because he knew who David was. He was the anointed successor. Everyone knew he'd been anointed. David stood apart from other Israelites. Therefore, he operated with different rules. Jesus places his own authority alongside of David. This is a powerful argument for Jesus as the anointed one of God. The second thing he does is he he takes them to numbers. To fulfill their duties, the priests had to work on the Sabbath. You see, throughout Matthew, consistently we see freedom within the law when it is interpreted in the light of Jesus. Verse 5 and 6. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple um, break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Folks, it is almost impossible to overstate 
the the shocking impact of this statement in in first century Israel to threaten the temple was con- considered to be treason, treason in fact unpardonable treason as Matthew's gospel unfolds we see Jesus negative attitude toward the temple and its activities and this will become uh, increasingly a central symbol of his challenge to the religious status quo it wasn't the temple that Jesus was against it's what it represented in John's gospel chapter 2 he says to the religious people destroy this temple and i will raise it in 3 days i want you to get a bit of an understanding of the significance of what jesus said for the jews the temple wasn't just a place of worship uh toward god it was considered a supernatural place it was the intersection point where heaven overlaps earth it's a special and a holy space and jesus is now saying he's the reality to which the temple points. He's the fulfillment of Israel's hope for God's glory that it would dwell in the temple. He says, no, it dwells in me. In the new reality of the kingdom, Jesus himself, and wherever Jesus is, that is the place of intersection with heaven and earth. It's in him and through him that heaven and earth connect. So he's the new temple, the the place of worship, of sacrifice, of sanctification. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians when he says, uh, with Christ in their midst, uh, he is the one with his church. Therefore, he says, we are the temple of the living God. We're the temple because Christ is in our midst. Verse 7, he says, but if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, we talked a few weeks ago uh, in chapter 9, verse 13, where where Jesus again quotes Hosea 6.6 6 to the Pharisees. And uh, you can go back and have a look at that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, except to say that Jesus is saying that the point of the law is not meticulous, scrupulous, observant to every detail. The point of the law is is generous humanity. Love God, love people. And that's what you see in the Old Testament prophets. Again and again, they actually rebuke Israel for its observance. It's, it's very minuscule, literal observance, and yet missing the bigger things. In God's scale of priorities, concern for others, which is mercy, is more important than compliance with ritual regulations. He says, I want mercy and I want compassion, not superhuman discipline. Religion always seems to lose this. And this is a warning. What he's telling them is a warning against, for all of us, against religious elitism and us and them. We've got to be aware of this in our own day. St. Hilary said this, the business of our salvation lies not in sacrifice, but in mercy. And then verse 8. So he's the temple he is he's the the new space of God's movement from temple to him and verse 8 for the son of man is lord of the sabbath 
So he's a new, the new time, this holy time of the Sabbath, because the Sabbath for the Jews was a time of rest. It was a time of relying on God more than their own efforts. Sabbath is a tangible living out our trust in God. It's fine to say, I trust in God, but we've got to live that out. Sabbath is about peaceful contentment. God blessed what he had created. He said, it's very good. And now he blessed the very act of resting. Why? Because he was confident in his creation. And so he rested. Sabbath is an expression of God's deep satisfaction. Sabbath reminds us of his favor and the pleasure he feels as he considers each one of us. If the Sabbath is about the rest of God, and we are made in his restful image, then his rest is specifically a promise for all of us. Jesus made this clear at the end of the previous chapter, 11, when he said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Throughout the scripture, rest and blessing are are closely linked. Secondly, the Sabbath also points to the ultimate fulfillment of God's great plan the restoration of all things, fulfillment, completion, shalom, which, by the way, we we tend to reduce to meaning peace, but it, it is fullness, wholeness, restoration. Sabbath is a prophetic declaration. Those who embrace Sabbath are pointing to the age to come, the kingdom of heaven. This is because Sabbath is a foretaste of how all creation will be when God's kingdom is fully established. Sabbath points to the end of injustice and the end of exploitation because its very nature declares the equality and worth of all people. Why? Because we embrace Sabbath regardless of our financial status or our social status or our need. We all embrace it together. You know, Jesus' first words in Mark, the earliest gospel, where the time is fulfilled. Again and again, we see Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It's like he goes out of his way to do that. The man with the withered hand, the blind man, the paralytic, the demoniac, the woman bent over 18 years, the paralytic at the pool. Why does he do this? Jesus was saying something profound in these actions on the Sabbath. He was saying, the time you've been waiting for is here now. I am the Sabbath. So we have here in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Mark in chapter 2 says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't just trying to criticize the religiousness of Sabbath keeping. He was declaring not only a new space like the temple, but a new time. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom has come. By saying this about the temple and about the Sabbath, Matthew is is presenting us something with something that's clearly and powerfully Christological. It points to the nature of Christ. According to the law, Sabbath is the day for and to Yahweh. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus is making a, a reference to his own true identity. It's like when he said in John, I and the Father are one. 
So let's move on a little bit to healing on the Sabbath. Starting at verse 9, Jesus left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. So again, we see that Hosea 6.6 principle of God desiring mercy. The, the, the Pharisees completely focused their interpretation of keeping Sabbath on the phrase we see here, is it lawful? Jesus responds with an example to show how religiousness, religiousness inevitably leads to hypocrisy. Folks, just think about that a while because it does. We create our own lists of what's righteous and what's holy. I find it interesting that as I travel to different nations in the world, that, that their lists are very different of what is holy behavior, what is righteous behavior. It's about the heart, folks. It's about the heart. So they say, is it lawful? But Jesus responds and says, it is lawful to do good. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. It's like when he said to the paralytic, stand up and walk, which demonstrated Jesus' authority. Right here, he is demonstrating his authority. It's an amazing thing when, when Jesus restores withered limbs I've seen it many times. Years ago, I saw it with a uh, a girl. She was seven years old, and her arm was all shriveled up. And in a moment, it's it's hard to explain. You can hardly see it. It's like it's just like two snapshots, one and the other. And suddenly, she's lifting up her her completely restored arm. I remember just a few years ago doing an outdoor meeting, and they were praying for the sick, and some of the team prayed for a little boy with a withered hand, all shriveled up. And suddenly, and he ran right through the crowd to the front, showing his hand moving. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. He, he desires mercy and not religious activity. St. Ambrose saw both a spiritual and a moral reading in this episode of Stretch Out Your Hand. Quoting Ambrose, Jesus said, stretch out your hand. See, here is a remedy for all ills. If you imagine that your hand is healthy, take care that it is not withered by greed or blasphemy. Stretch it out often. Stretch it out to the poor who beg for help. Stretch it out to help your neighbor. Stretch it out to give a helping hand to the widow. This is how to stretch out one's hand. This is how one is healed. Isn't that wonderful? Powerful. So what we're seeing is this conflict narrative that the conflict starts to grow in chapter 11, and now it's really going. And it goes now at verse 14. It crosses the divide and goes to a whole different level. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Verse 15 to 21, wonderful passage. When Jesus became aware of this, he departed. 
Many crowds followed him, and he cured all of them, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory, and his name the Gentile, in his name the Gentiles will hope. <clears throat> the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus moved away from conflict. He didn't seek it out. He is avoiding premature, avoidable conflict because he knows it's coming, but he's not looking for it. Remember, this is Jesus who had all authority, who was fully righteous. Therefore, he was completely in the right. Nevertheless, he chose to take the low road, That's why he said elsewhere, learn from me, for I am meek and lonely. Beloved, this is the position of those who commit themselves to follow Jesus. We must face the truth that much of the church has ignored Jesus' example in this time where where the, the world and the church, maybe more than the world, is shouting out, my rights, my rights, whether, whether it's to, to mask or no mask, to, to vaccinate or not vaccinate. It, it's, we're missing what it is to follow Jesus, who avoided conflict that was avoidable. Now, this, this position of Jesus is the background for Matthew quoting from Isaiah's suffering servant passage. This is the longest Old Testament quote in all of Matthew's gospel, and it reflects not just this immediate issue of Jesus withdrawing. This is a portrait of Jesus' entire ministry. He took the low place, always. Let me say that again. Church, Jesus, who we follow, took the low place, always. Matthew uses this passage to summarize Jesus' ministry up to this point. Martin Luther said Isaiah's prophecy paints the entire Christ. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Unlike so many contemporary examples, Jesus does not seek dramatic confrontation for the glory of God. When that happens, I I have to say, I believe we're in the flesh, not in the spirit. Jesus led the way, and he wasn't trying to bring dramatic confrontation, ever. Rather, he does his work quietly. This is the way that Christ works. In contrast to so many who claim to be doing his work loudly, confrontationally. Verse 20, he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. I have loved that verse since I first read it, you know, 45 years ago. Jesus' life and ministry are focused upon and are for the broken and the weak. A reed had two uses in first century Israel. One was um, as, a, as a measuring stick, and the other, the little bit bigger ones, as a walking stick. But if if they were bent or cracked, they were of no further use. 
and so you get rid of them. Likewise, the lamps were um, flaxen, and uh, uh, the wick was, and uh, and it, if it if it was smoking, it was of no use. So they got rid of it and replaced it. Jesus' imagery describes a great willingness to encourage damaged or vulnerable people. Jesus is the savior of failures and of little people. I think we need to think about that. He wants us to have fruitful lives, abundant lives, joyful lives, but he aligns himself with the weak, with the little people, even with the failures. And you know, Many leaders have little time for the weak because, after all, they're not good candidates for for movements or growing organizations. What is pictured here is a man, Jesus, and a ministry that is so gentle and so compassionate that the weak are never ignored. They're never trampled under by the very speed and momentum that is, is so often there in flourishing movements. I remember having to learn this the hard way, probably many times, as I pastored uh, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s movements that were churches that were growing, and they had great momentum. And it's so easy to get our eyes onto the momentum and let's get the right people that we can really build this. Jesus never did that. He never did that. And this passage finishes with, until he brings justice to victory. This is God's way of true, ultimate victory. God's servant will never rest in his nonviolent zeal until he brings perfect justice and righteousness to the earth. Yes, he will bring perfect justice, perfect righteousness, but he doesn't fight for it. He rescues. He, he doesn't resist evil. This takes him all the way to the cross. So, Throughout this section we've just looked at, we see Jesus revealed as as the temple, uh, as Sabbath, and as Scripture. He exercises this lordship that he has, this total and final authority, is exercised as a servant. We follow the servant king, the one who said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. His victory is not established in power, but in serving. The next section I want to look at is is really the whole controversy around the the origin, the spiritual origin of what he does. They brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute, and he cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed. Note that. He uses a really strong word for amazed in this particular incident. And they said, can this be the son of David? There's great excitement. But the Pharisees, when they heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Pay attention to that verse. It's really important. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There's so much there, I want to just touch on kind of the highlights. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Matthew contrasts the positive, thrilled reaction, actually, uh, of uh, of the crowd to the strong opposition of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They come to the opposite conclusion of the crowd. Why? Because their minds are already made up. Folks, we need to continually seek the Lord that he keeps his heart, our hearts soft and our, our thoughts submissive to him and flexible. We need to stay open, to be flexible, to continue to grow and learn. Even when it takes us away from previous assumptions, the things that I have come to know about Jesus, I would say this last 10 or 11 years would have been unfathomable to me 25 years ago. That that we're on a journey. We have to continue to recognize we're on a journey and that he wants to reveal more and more and more of himself. And that means sometimes we need to give up previous assumptions. So the Pharisees were not prepared to admit that the supernatural force at work in Jesus was divine. There's only one other source, demonic, and that's why they said what they did. By the way, this isn't so out there. Uh, I came to Christ in the 70s, part of the Jesus People movement on the West Coast. It's like so many of us. But in the midst of this, it was a charismatic movement, and we began to recognize tongues and interpretation and prophecy and healing. And I'm telling you, the... The religious establishment, though not anymore, but at that time, they spoke so much against spiritual gifts. They're not for today. They ended when the last chapter of the Bible was written. That What is that? They were not prepared to, to let the Lord teach them new things and take them deeper. We need to all watch out for that. I need to keep watching out for that all the time. Verse 25 and 26, Jesus makes the common sense argument that it's absurd to imagine Satan would attack his own forces. That makes no sense. Then we come to that verse I told you to pay attention to, verse 18, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
So the first thing is, where the Spirit is at work, the kingdom comes. The kingdom is present in the midst of Jesus' works of helping people. Remember a couple of weeks ago, the first half of Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends his disciples, are you the coming one? Jesus says, tell John what you see. These are the signs of the kingdom. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, etc. So the kingdom is present in the midst of Jesus' works of helping people. Secondly, the release of the Holy Spirit's power is not only a means of combating demonic power, It is also a sign of something bigger, more far-reaching. It is a sign of the establishment of God's kingdom in place of that of Satan's. Every healing, every deliverance from that day to this is about God taking back from the enemy what the enemy has stolen from God. This is spiritual warfare, to say, may I pray for you, to pray and see pain leave bodies or people set free. Verse 29, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. This is really important verse, both for spiritual warfare and evangelism. One of the things that I've really learned over the last decade, uh, especially in in working with our partners in India, is, is the power of, of binding the strong man, how important it is to bind the strong man. This, this is exhibited in lots of ways. One is the power of prayer walking. I've walked many, many, many a community and prayed and prayed until a sense of breakthrough in binding the work of the strong man. So I may pray in a, in a neighborhood and I, I just come against drug addiction because I just really sense that or, or I come against, uh, conflict in families, or whatever it may be. But I bind, I bind the strong man in the name of Jesus. Another aspect is binding unbelief when inviting people to turn to Jesus. I have scores of tangible examples. I, You know, while I'm saying to someone in another country, and I've got the time of a translator, would you like now to give your life to Jesus? Because maybe they've just been healed or something. And uh, and if they say no, then I know it's the work of the enemy, the one who blinds their eyes. And so I'll say to my translator, don't translate this. And I'll speak out because they don't know what I'm saying. In the name of Jesus, I bind the strong man over your mind right now and over your heart. In the name of Jesus, I bind you and tell you to let go of this person. Amen. I'll say that only I'll say it in more casual voice tone. And then I'll say all over again, would you like to ask Jesus to come into your life? Yes, I would. I'm not making this up, folks. I see this again and again and again. So here's another point in this verse. Um, The strength of Satan, who Paul called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, it's acknowledged that, yes, he has strength, but now he's met his match. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote years ago, and I, I remembered this since I read it, that believers make one of two mistakes. They either give too much attention to the enemy or too little. Now, 
I want to tie this back to Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, about this, about this spiritual warfare, this taking back what the enemy has stolen. And here are the verses. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. What a wonderful promise. And it was prophetic. He was looking across the centuries to the work of Christ. You know, we as believers should see the world basically in two ways. One is an occupied country. Uh, Wherever faith in Christ hasn't yet happened, wherever the kingdom hasn't been released, they're an occupied country. They're they're controlled. They're like prisoners of war, of, of the enemy. But the other way we should see the world is as a liberated country, wherever Christ is working in response to faith. You see, Jesus is two, or rather Satan is two things at once. He's tied up and he continues to tempt as a roaring lion, Peter said. This is why we are at war. And so verse 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Two points here, easy points. Number one, neutrality is impossible. There's no middle ground. And number two, Jesus expects, and I would say requires, that those who will follow him gather with him. Now, I want to move on to what's called the unpardonable sin, verse 31 and 32. In fact, I'll go back and and read those verses for you. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy. Sin is what we do against mankind. Blasphemy is what we do against God. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Well, this this has been a very problematic verse for a lot of people. And... um, Oh, I've just jumped here. Give me a second. And as as a pastor, I was confronted with how difficult this was uh, over the years for people. They would come to me and they say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. And many people have said, what is the unpardonable sin? There's been so much emphasis has been given to the identity of the unpardonable sin. And frankly, most of it is wrong and much of it is harmful. Um, people are afraid they've committed this sin. Teaching on the unpardonable sin has too often been inappropriate. It has done damage it, because it's been applied to contexts which have little to do with its original setting. Context is everything. We've said it here before. What Jesus said here is specifically concerned with and applies to what the Pharisees have just said. It's about this this confrontation where they accused him of, you know, working for uh, Satan, Beelzebul. They've expressed their opposition to the good and rescuing purposes of God, which if, if their views do not change, 
It's ultimately unforgivable. But I want you to hear something. And this reflects my great faith in the work of the cross. The sin is unforgivable. It does much damage, but it's not the person who's unforgivable. 20th century theologian Eugene Boring said this, Our opponents are not themselves the ultimate enemy, but like ourselves, they are victimized by the powers of evil, which threaten to overwhelm us all, but which are ultimately doomed. The powers of evil, not necessarily our opponents. Now, this saying this saying can't be, should not be applied to, to imagined or real offenses against the Holy Spirit, which have nothing to do with the very blasphemy that these Pharisees have done. What Jesus is doing, again, we're back to rhetoric. He's saying, don't you understand what you're doing and how serious this is? The point is not that there's some unforgivable sin. I don't think that's the context here. Now, verses 33 to 37, the power and significance of words. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure. The evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So Jesus just speaks it out fully, and he doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? This this passage, by the way, reflects what we talked about weeks ago um, in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, that our lives reveal our heart. The emphasis here is on the power of our words. Jesus is strongly confronting the Pharisees for what they have just said. And what he says to them is applicable to all of us. Words matter. But I want to say this, I don't think it's so much about be careful what you say, although that is certainly included, but more it's about the realization that our words will reflect what's in our heart. They come out of our heart. This takes us back to the Beatitudes yet again. To to change the fruit, which is our words, we need to engage in the lifelong process of abiding in the vine. Our words have consequences, both now, how they affect others and the direction of our own lives, but they also have consequences when we stand before Christ. We will give an account. I've told you that before in this series. Uh, A a very clear passage in, in 1 Corinthians 3 says we're going to give an account for everything, for how we built our lives and the fire of God, that consuming fire of uh, of Hebrews 12 is going to come and burn up what is wood, hay, and stubble. So, knowing this, in the context of, of every word we speak, we seek God's we seek God's work. We seek we seek Jesus Christ's work of healing grace upon our hearts, upon our relationships, upon our attitudes. We need to abide in Him because. What is at the heart is the source of our words. The sign of Jonah, Jonah, 
38-42, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jesus dismisses the request for a sign because of the Pharisees' attitude. And he called them a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, in episode two, if you go back in the podcast to 5-2, and in fact you go to 20 minutes and 15 seconds in, I'll say that again, episode 5-2, 20 minutes and 15 seconds in, you'll hear Brad Jerzak give the greatest, fullest explanation of, of this example Jesus used about Jonah. So I'm not going to repeat that now. You go there and you'll get some real gold. And he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment. Nineveh was a Gentile city, of course. Jesus is really pointing out that the Gentiles are turning to Christ with faith and rejoicing, while the Jewish leaders are resisting and unhappy and envious. I want to go down now and finish with Jesus' true family, verse 46 to 50. While he was speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now we have had a tumultuous chapter filled with accusation and acrimony and rejection all toward Jesus. And Matthew gives us at the end of this chapter a sudden shift. And now we see a new fellowship is formed. And it's such a contrast to what we've been in the midst of all through this chapter. The thing to notice is that Jesus' family is outside, outside the house, beyond the sphere of his teaching. And in fact, we don't have record of his family listening to his teaching throughout his ministry. But what is happening inside the house invites us to come into the house. I love in in John 1, uh, they say, where are you going? And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. This story, this brief story at the end of chapter 12, invites us inside to be members of a new kind of family. It's for those who have been rejected uh, by their families because of their choice to follow Jesus. It's also for those who have not known the security and the nurture of a, a healthy, functional family. And we know that that has just grown and grown and grown. It's epidemic. And that's who it's for. Come. It's this inclusive gospel we talk about. You come too. And then he says, so for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. This is exact repetition of Matthew 7.21, of 
The ones that Jesus knows are the ones who do the will of his Father. They're the ones who actively do the will of his Father. The essence of discipleship, folks, is not right doctrine, but right doing. And it's so easy for us to miss that. And we start learning on Sundays and studying doctrine and doctrine and doctrine. That's not the essence of discipleship. By the way, I'm not against studying. I love studying. was studying this weekend. But that isn't about discipleship. It's right doing. And he says, and whoever does this, does the will of my father, is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's really interesting. He doesn't say, and my father. St. Ambrose said this, Jesus believes that he has a greater obligation to the mysteries of his father than he does to his natural feeling or his mother. In no sense does he brush aside the rights of parents. Nevertheless, he is teaching us that spiritual bonds are more sacred than blood relations. Whenever I read this scene, it always takes me to two other places, also within a home, within a house. In Luke 11, with Mary and Martha at their home. And John 12, where in the context of being family together, Mary pours out the perfume on Jesus. And it says, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance. I think there's a rich fragrance to being together in the intimate presence of Jesus. The reality of being part of Jesus' family, this is what he's calling us to, of knowing other men and women deeply, deeply as brothers and sisters. This is our inheritance. This is our true identity. This is why throughout the New Testament, when the word you, which we have, we haven't got a plural use or use, guys. And so we miss and we read it individually. It is almost always, 90% of the time, it is corporate. It's this family that we're invited into because of the work of the cross. This morning, I was just contemplating the cross, just sitting out in the quiet. It was a beautiful, beautiful early morning. And Jesus on the cross. And I was uh, reading a little bit from Julian of Norwich, who's one of my favorite contemplatives from the 14th century. But as I read it, I just, I was struck again. The incredible power of the cross, the beauty of the love of Jesus, who died on the cross to, to, to bring us freedom from the enemy, to give us a new beginning for the kingdom to come, But all of that is so much in the context of this family, the family of God. It's our inheritance. It's who we are meant to be. We need to recover this in our time and in our world. Beloved, we need to recover it. Gather family. Jesus in the midst, the fragrance in the house from John 12. And that's my strong encouragement. We've covered several big issues today. You know, we've talked about Hosea 6.6, about mercy and not religious activity. We've talked about Jesus being the temple, Jesus being the Sabbath. We've talked about 
a misunderstanding of the unpardonable sin. And I hope today you get some freedom. So it's been a full, full time today. God bless you, and we'll meet in the next minute or two, Tim and I, for some further discussion. Thanks for listening. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Okay. <laughs> you got through that whole chapter. I did. You did. did you feel like you were Russian? Uh, I felt like I was skipping over mm-hmm. the water, but on coming down, hopefully, on the important yeah, things. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have some questions for you, but I thought this week, rather than uh, doing an ad per se, I thought I'd actually advertise something free. I thought I'd give our listeners something. You spent some time today talking about the nature of uh, Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath, and you had written, I don't know how long ago, maybe a year and a half ago or so, yeah, a um, about... Uh, the Power of Sabbath Rest, actually, is the name of the ebook, mm-hmm. And we're giving that away on our website. So if you want to head to impactnations.com slash Sabbath, uh, you can find an uh, opportunity to download a free ebook um, where you're just going to begin to understand a little bit about the nature of Sabbath. And uh, the how true significant it is uh, spiritually, but also sociologically. Yeah. And uh, it's a real alignment um, of our lives mm-hmm. with the Jesus way, uh, and Sabbath puts us sometimes diametrically opposed to the culture. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, what would you say is one of the more common mistakes, perhaps theological mistake or whatever, regarding Sabbath that the church makes or that, that we make in understanding the nature of Sabbath? Okay, I think one of the mistakes is um, we are not – understanding it through a, a new covenant paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sabbath in our mind equals Sunday, which yeah. ironically <laughs> it would have been Saturday until the early church when mm-hmm. they picked Sunday. Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest things. You know that as I spend time with, with pastors and leaders in different countries, mm-hmm. one of the first things I talk about is when is your Sabbath? Yeah. And Sabbath could be Tuesday, could be Friday. Sure. But it's, it's that trusting in the Lord mm-hmm. that uh, – just like he rested, trusting in his creation, in what he had yeah. done, we need to do the same. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me ask you a question. You you finished up. I'd actually already written down this question uh, earlier in your teaching today, and then you finished up in a similar place. You talked at the end here about family, the importance of being a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Um Earlier, you quoted that passage out of Isaiah about a bruised reed, yeah. uh, and it it got. I I think it'd be great if you could spend just a couple of moments pastorally for those who are feeling like the smoldering wick or the bruised weed reed, those who feel like they're on the outside, and they've said yes to Jesus, but they they just feel ostracized. They don't feel like they're a part of something. Um, Maybe they've had trouble connecting in a in a church community. Uh, maybe they're just wrestling with guilt and shame, and they they just can't 
take that next step. What would you say to those who are feeling that way? Because I think sometimes we preach to uh, those who are on the inside about being inclusive. Mm -hmm. But it'd be great if you could talk for a few minutes about if you're on the outside, how do you get to the inside? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, In Proverbs, it says, you know, that the one who wants friends must himself be friendly to others. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we... In the last year, Christina and I have have become part of a new church family, and we've needed to be proactive mm-hmm. uh, in making friends, inviting them over. Yeah. But, uh, sometimes they're surprised. It's not so much the culture of the city that we live Indeed. in. But um, so one thing is to be proactive rather yeah. than to say, oh, nobody sees me or I'm invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, that you really want to be – uh, finding ways to be in community, mm-hmm. whether your church has some sort of small group structure or even if it's around some common interest within the church, whatever, we need to be in community. But it is too easy to sit back, be passive, and say, nobody yeah. ever calls me. Mm-hmm. Nobody's invited me into a group. <laughs> yeah. It, it is. Yeah. And that's exactly the lie of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And we need – you know – I use the example of of coming into the house. They need to come in. You got to come in. You Mm -hmm. can't just stand outside saying, wow, it looks like they're having a good time. Yeah. You got to come in. Yeah. And it can take, uh, it can take time. Yep. I think, you know, you talked about, uh, if I recall, it was in First Church Restored. uh, You talked about the myth of quality time. Versus the importance of quantity time. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's something that's really important for people to understand. Like, if you want to become a part of a community and, and, and you know, really feel like you're a part of a family, it takes time. Uh, you know, I, I heard some preaching yesterday talking about, like, you, you have to schedule time with the Lord uh, because otherwise it, you will always miss out on going deeper with the Lord. Uh, in the same way, and he was saying, hey, hey, gentlemen, you probably, when you were dating your wife, like, you scheduled time because you were trying to go yep. into deeper relationship. Yep. In the same way, we have to do the same thing in our in getting connected with the family of God and getting connected with community, yes. you've got to just schedule it. And I mean, I, <laughs> I was just texting with a friend of mine who's a very dear friend and he and I haven't seen each other in a while um, because we hadn't just been disciplined about like, Hey, look, calendars out, let's go. Like, let's plan this time. And we're very close friends. And mm-hmm. the funny, one of the interesting things too, is when there isn't quantity of time, sometimes if you go a long time without connecting meaningfully with somebody uh, the enemy then actually starts to get in and starts telling you lies about, <laughs> well, maybe they're mad at you, or maybe the, maybe you guys aren't that good of friends after all. They've sort moved of, on. They, or exactly, yeah. yeah. And it can really deteriorate the relationship. And slowly but surely, suddenly you start to feel like you're on the outside again when that's that's not reality at all. But the enemy sure would love to convince you of that. And I know we're talking right into your sweet spot. Yeah. You and I have talked before. You there. You guys are in the midst of a growing, flourishing, very real community. Yeah. You know, I remember one day at the office morning, you said, man, I never know who's going to be in my house when I come home from <laughs> yeah, work. that's true. And I yeah. said, now you've got community. Mm-hmm. You've got that's family. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. I think it's connected to the, the theme, a recurring theme here, the, the hospitality, Romans yeah. 12, 13, pursue hospitality. Mm-hmm. 
whether we're looking at the people that are already in the house or the ones outside. Yeah. There needs to be something proactive yeah. in it. And I would say start loving well. Like those who are in your life, even if you feel like maybe you're not that connected, like <laughs> when the Lord brings them to your mind, pray for them and then tell them, hey, I've been praying for you this week. Or, hey, hey, I, the Lord keeps bringing you to mind. How can I be praying for you this week? It's sim- a simple text message will go a long way in actually taking you deeper in Absolutely. relationship and bringing you Absolutely. inside. Uh, so there you go. I asked you the question and then answered half of it myself. But uh, <laughs> all right. You talked about Jesus taking the low place, and we've talked about this a lot here uh, in terms of the way Jesus wins victory uh, is through suffering, is through not fighting back. We've spent a lot of time over the years in five five seasons of the podcast talking about that. Uh, but Jesus does win the victory. He is victorious. He is the lion and yeah. the lamb. Yep. How do we find that balance of... Uh, <laughs> you know, in our worship songs, we talk about the victory of the Lord. We talk about, you know, um, being full of faith for the breakthrough and, and victory and things like that. Where's the balance between um, being, yeah, l- celebrating Jesus' lowliness, but also recognizing that ultimately the victory is his? Absolutely. And, and the last verse in that Isaiah passage mm-hmm. talks about that. It's the nature of the victory. He didn't. He didn't outmuscle them. He didn't outargue yeah. them. He didn't. He didn't win the argument, and he kept his heart right, and he kept his eyes on the Father, yeah. and he trusted, trusted, trusted the work of the Lord. Part of what, of course, brought that up for me is we're in a season, a prolonged season, mm-hmm. where I'm I'm sad to see how much of the church. Um, especially the evangelical church, just mm-hmm. to be straight, is arguing and fighting and texting and Facebooking yeah. about their rights, and nowhere, anywhere did Jesus ever do that. Yeah. Because if we do that, how can we be trusting him, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Where's the balance between being a doormat and being um, meek? Being like, yeah. Because you, to, you still need to be— the a, third way, which sure. we talked about— yeah. Because you like Jesus is still assertive. Like he yep. certainly had something to say to the Pharisees. That brood of vipers is really nice. Yeah, <laughs> put that on a party invitation. Um, but but he he never spoke that way to the broken, to the regular. He was confronting a spirit, is what it was. Okay. He was confronting a spirit. Mm-hmm. That spirit didn't seem to be in Nicodemus or Joseph, so he didn't confront that spirit. Yeah. And uh, and he did that. But but that's so different to where we I see so much of the church okay. now. It's it's about my rights and it's about they're trying to control me and it, yeah. whatever side of the vaccination or the mask issue, uh, and it used to be the Black Lives and it used to be you know the yeah. the, the election. It's not the Jesus way. Yeah. Okay. Last question. You talked about. This was really interesting. You talked about being open-minded, and and as soon as we become hard-hearted and just stuck entrenched in in our current theology, our current understanding of the kingdom of Jesus, of the nature of God, uh, we're in trouble. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've been on a journey for the last many many years. Uh, I, you and I were talking earlier today. I've been on a journey for the last several years of of gaining a new understanding of cruciform love. Um, but is there a danger 
is there a danger of <laughs> wandering into heresy? If you're, if you're keeping an open mind, how do you know where the boundaries are? And I've asked this question before, but, um, you know, because certainly there are times when you want to have conversations with friends and you're suddenly like, I don't, I'm not sure I want to have this conversation with this guy because he's just going <laughs> to tell me I'm a heretic. Call you a heretic. Yeah. That's true. I've got some that I just kind of avoid. You just mm-hmm. give a nice soft answer. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, I spend a lot of time in the scriptures. Yeah. Right? And and the scriptures teach the scriptures. Yeah. Number two, I keep theologically accountable beyond myself. Yeah. Um, number three, it comes back to my time alone with Jesus mm-hmm. in trusting him. And yeah. all I know is the fruit of the last whatever, ten dozen years, the fruit is a much deeper walk with him, mm-hmm. understanding things I didn't understand before, and recognizing that I'm still in process. You yeah. know I always joke with people when they start to get a little edgy, I say, oh, that's okay, I don't even uh, agree with everything I believe. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and they go, huh? And it's me saying, I'm in process. Sure. I'm in process. Yeah. You know, the Pharisees weren't in process. They yeah. said, this is it. I've arrived. And, and look, and look yeah. what happened. Mm-hmm. They just got yeah. away from what yeah. the Lord was doing. I, I think this plays right back into our rights, by the way, because I, I think as soon as you say, I've got the right to be right, like I'm right on this one and everybody else is wrong, and you become entrenched on something is when you're in pretty big trouble. Yeah, I think it's true. Yeah. I think it's true. And, you know, I've said this before. I do not believe that the Bible is a, a collection of propositional truth. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's got truth in it, of course, but it's bigger than that. It's mm-hmm. a narrative of God wooing his children. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's it's this ultimate love letter. Yeah. And I think if we can keep that in mind, we don't hold on to each of the little presuppositions that we make that, yeah. you know, and, and as soon as I start saying, well, everybody knows, then I know I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good um, alright we're going to leave it there thank you so much for joining us uh, we will be back next week are you doing uh, 13, 13 all gonna, in one gonna, no I think I think no. we're going to take two weeks on okay. the parables and even that is just an introduction there's just so you much know, I've there got a, I've yeah. got a thousand page <laughs> fine print book on the parables right? I got an idea why don't you just sit in this chair next week and read us all 1000 pages of, of your book on the parables that will be until I die <laughs> This is perfect. Tune in next week. Yeah, you don't want to miss that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, in all seriousness, we will be here again next week at Thursday uh, at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, we'd love for you to join us on YouTube, on Facebook Live, uh, or hit subscribe on the audio podcast at impactnations.com slash podcast, uh, and check out all those old episodes as well. Do be sure, by the way, do yourself a favor. I did it today. Uh, go back and listen to uh, that episode 5-2 with Brad. Um, it it's a good review and you may have already listened to it, but you know, if so, maybe jump ahead to that 20 minute mark, uh, to get that stuff on Jonah. Cause it's fantastic. Uh, I was, I was listening to it again today before I was rudely interrupted by a call from Brad Jerzak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so check it out. Impactnations.com slash podcast for all the old material or hit subscribe. It'll get delivered right to your favorite podcast app. Uh, we love having you guys here. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have great a great week. With you.